This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by the MXR Bass Compressor. The MXR Bass Compressor is a powerful bass comp that allows you to fine-tune your sound from subtle peak limiting to hard squash compression. It's a totally transparent comp to give you control over attack, release, ratio, input, and output. It also has an easy-to-use LED that allows you to meter your signal threshold on the fly. It's an essential piece of gear that no bass player should be without and is great for both live and studio applications. Go to jimdunlop.com and check out the MXR Bass Innovations Bass Compressor. What is up, my friends? Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. This is a place for all of us bass freaks to chat it up, gain a little insight and inspiration, and have some fun with some great bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today we welcome my friend Sean Hurley to the show. Big round of applause for Sean. Oh, hello. Hey, great hey. to see you, Josh. You know what? I liked your walk-on. That was really... No oh, one can see thank it. You. I did no not slip. It. it was real pro. Yeah, we were just talking about, uh, before the show started, um, the different pants that we wear for different occasions nowadays Absolutely. due to uh, the changes in the world that seem to have occurred in the last year or two. So what are you wearing now? Uh, today, I am sporting some soft pants. Made by a company that you know, I I'm not getting paid to wear them, so I'm not going to say. But they're really great; they fit well, and I'm I'm really proud to rep them when I walk outside. And you mm. know, it feels good. I had hard pants on earlier, and then when I came back in, it's like to get that vibe that I want to chill with a friend and chat, have a little coffee. I got them soft pants on, and I'm loving it. I'm with you. I started off in soft pants. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna roll with the soft pants as long as I possibly can. Great. And always uh, with a cup of coffee. So cheers to you, brother. Uh, cheers to you, Josh. You have broken in to the session world in L.A. Like, I, when I say broken into, I mean, you you dove in and took it by storm. I, I read about it in Bass Player Magazine when I was a kid growing up in Western Mass. And I thought, it's like, okay, you just, whether you pick New York or L.A. And then you go, you land and you announce... I want to do sessions, and I'm not sure who you're supposed to tell, but that's, in my mind, that was supposed to be how it worked, and it didn't quite work out as seamlessly as that, but somehow, by being in a studio, that led to another one, that led to another one, that led to another one, although I'm sure the studio scene has changed dramatically since what I read about in the magazines to what (laughs) I experienced, but I do... I am grateful that I got to get into a lot of studios and consider be considered a studio bass player. Okay, so I know we have a lot of listeners that are not necessarily bass players or just starting out or maybe haven't done sessions or gone on tour or or and um quite the opposite. They are pros and there are um colleagues, esteemed uh, right. musician friends, but um let's let's talk about the definition of a session player. Well, I, that I don't think has changed much since what we would have read about uh, Lee Sklar, Will Lee, Chuck Rainey, you know, even James Jamerson. The job that I thought it would be and what it turned out to be is to work with the artist, the producer, whoever's in charge and who's got the material that's landing on your music stand and then try to diagnose like what what do they need from me? Do they need me to just play the ink where it's all written out? And so you have to have that skill set ready to go. Or are they playing you a demo tape with just an acoustic guitar and a, a piano and vocal and going, hey, there's a big C, A minor, D minor, G, uh, f- four bars of chord progression. And 
we got to make it feel cool. So then you got to draw on this other thing where there's there's nothing to draw on other than chords and they have an idea for a feeling they want out of you. I don't think that much has changed because it's been, in my experience, the 20 plus years I've been doing it. I see those things almost weekly. One day it's this, very scripted. And so you have to have that high level of, hey, this is what you were practicing for to get into music college and out of it. It's the same game. And then the other thing of, hey, you show up in a room with a bunch of guys and you got to create music out of thin air. Okay. I mean, that that sounds like a dream job <laughs> for so many people. What, sure. uh, what is the ratio on what you actually get to throw some of yourself into creating wise or just, uh, as you say, um, playing the ink? For my world, because for what I've learned is there's so many differences. Like the whole that whole range can be one guy can be doing all the ink stuff, another guy can be doing all the creative stuff. I fall somewhere on the come in with a blank slate world because of my success with singer songwriter people or you know by working with vocalists mainly it just attracts other artists other producers that are producing solo artists that they, the, the person doesn't have a band and that often is maybe there's a demo but often there's just a performance in the studio or there might be a mp3 sent with a acoustic guitar or a rough demo um I, in that world, so if you walk into that, for me, it's probably 75%. Just come up with something cool. Help us, you know, make the song feel like this genre or feel like that, or it's got to make me want to move. And th that I enjoy a lot. You know, I the ink world has lessened for me. And I still, when I, I've got one tomorrow, when it comes up, I when I take a look at it, it's like, all right, this is very cool, but it's just not my everyday and I'm kind of, you know, you can't really plot out your, your exact course. And I'm grateful for, I, I realize that I really get excited about the, the artist that's like, sometimes they're not even sure if they love their song anymore because they've spent so much time with it. They bring it through the producer. It goes through all these tests. Then they bring it to the studio floor. And if you can make them fall in love with something based on what you do, you know, if they fall in love with their song all over again, that's kind of a special feeling where when you're just playing a scripted part, often the reward is cool, but it's really short-lived because you're just bringing to life something that's been tempted up. Dude, that is a, I love that. I love that insight. Um, and I love that that actually just shows that you care about what you're doing. Um, Indeed. Yeah. I still great. have the, the same excitement, which luckily, you know, everyone I run into in even though we've been at it 20 or 30 years, they seem to, you, you suit up and you you go for it and everybody still gets as excited and, you know, a little bit concerned when it's not getting there and everybody still attacks it. I have yet to be in a room where it was, anybody was, you know, signing off too early or they were jaded about it. Everybody from the drummer all the way to the producer that I tend to run with in LA is like, they're, they're going for gold every time. That's awesome and and good for you on that it's a good community so, yeah that's great okay uh one of the things i love about your playing is is your um i guess use of space you leave a lot of space which I, which yeah works I, well i guess it's works my who i amazing. am amazing it works well with vocalists and um a lot of the music that you tend to to work on i mean you I, I was looking at your discography earlier and it's large 
Hey, hope, hey bro, you got a very large yeah. discography. <laughs> well, you know, I saw you looking at my discography and I plushed a little bit. <laughs> so you, uh, Vertical Horizon, John Mayer, um, I'm, you, it said Gwen Stefani, which I didn't know that you yeah, did that. Yeah, did a couple Christmas records with her. Very cool. Were, uh, just the last couple of years. And those were a lot of fun because they had like a 60s throwback, all that classic Darlene Love kind of sound. That was a lot of fun. So you just, everyone, you just grab it. If you play with the artist, throw it on your discography. Yeah. How many records actually have you played on? Uh, that I don't know. I'd have to check. I, I, for a while, I heard that Kenny Aronoff would save his charts that he would make. And he's a big chart maker reader. He does it really with great accuracy. So I started saving mine and I had folders. And I at some point I had to, change my tune and like if it was somebody that wasn't a bigger artist that I thought I might play live with I started you know not worrying about saving the charts because I make a a two-page chart basically for every tune and there's got to be thousands that have gone through so provided that they all were released it's got to be you know thousands I would imagine because it really gets up there in in 20 years and there's probably I don't know, five to 10 songs in a week that, you know, at, at various times, it's just, it adds up quickly. That's amazing, dude. Are there any highlights? Is there, is there like one or two performances that you, you played on? And you said, damn, I'm proud of that. Well, there, there's a couple, it, they tend to be little wins. Like there was one kid I played with Trevor Hall, who's still at it. He's out there. He's, he's got a great following. Not a big name to that my neighbor's going to know who he is, but I remember doing the sessions with a producer that has since moved to Nashville, this guy Marshall Altman. I'm playing with my favorite musicians, you know, Aaron Sterling's on drums, Zach Ray's on keys. I think Michael Chavez was on guitar. And it was, you know, there's a lot of, when you're playing with a singer, the way I do it is I'm playing to support things. So there's not a lot of standout moments for me, mm-hmm. but I like the credit of just playing, being the guy in the room that plays the right thing. And if you don't notice it, that's also cool. And there was the last song, I think, on the recording, they were going to change it up. You know, drummer was and the keyboard player were both standing over a little MPC kind of thing, programming some drums or playing it live, actually. I think they are doing it through logic on a little keyboard and then so they were like okay this is all going to rely on you to do something like come together like you know where there's a definitive baseline that's simple but it also is such a hook so i just and i they even referenced the chili peppers um god what is the song now i'm drawing a blank but crazy town ended up sampling it for their tune, but you know, it's some high stuff, melodic stuff where the chords are all within the bass line. And I came up with one of those on the fly and my musician friends are cheering. (laughs) That is, even if the audience doesn't hear it as like, oh, that's a really cool bass line. For me, impressing my bandmates is, or, or making them proud or having them dig what I'm doing has always been a highlight. So sometimes, you know, I remember the first compliment I got from playing with Vertical Horizon was in the studio. And I was told, you know, we're going to go record this record at Bearsville with Jeff Buckley recorded there, the band recorded there. This has been a a storied studio that's no longer there. Things have changed a bit, but this is late 90s. 
And I was told, hey, Tony Levin lives down the road. So if, if you don't cut it with the producer, like the band, we love you. But if the producer says you're not good enough, we're going to have to bring in a pro and you'll still be our band guy and you'll tour with us. So it was, you know, all right, I got to be great. It's simple music where you have to just play the right part, play in tune in time, you know, basic pop rock. And I remember the assistant or one of the uh, additional engineer programmer guys, we played the first pass of a song and I was literally playing all whole notes for the verse with a pick. And then, the, you know, maybe some half notes later, this is what the song was. It's what the singer wanted. And the guy, you know, Mark came up to me. He's like, hey, man, I know you're great because you every downbeat, you nailed it. It was so perfect. And we were recording to tape, so there was going to be no nudging or moving. And he gave me a compliment like no one else was listening to you, but I was. And I thought you're great because you were flawlessly hitting the downbeat that felt good it was the right time and like you don't get a second chance to play a whole note you just you do it and there's no makeup and on tape so I took that as okay I was gonna make the cut for the record but also you know those fundamentals are so valuable and now you know you can apply it to any other thing or you know sports whatever but fundamentals if they're not there and so I just got excited like okay my instincts of trying to be a pro on the simplest stuff, I can always expand and try to play better, faster, you know, more interesting lines. But if I can get the fundamentals perfectly so that when you play the simplest, dumbest thing, someone goes, wow, that was great. Then I know I'm on the right path. And, and that's the one that was, that would be what would lead me to, hey, I play with some space and with some singers because I'm giving them moments to do the shining things, and I will create the bed that allows them to fly to their highest heights. And you do it well. Thank you. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, what is your approach to coming up with the right line? Well, it, you know, this is in the world I'm living in. It's like there's it's not in the abstract. So we're, we're not walking on stage and going, OK, let's play free avant garde whatever, go for it, which there's a place for that. I got friends that can do that and they excel. Tim LaFave, I know, is yeah. one I can think of like, boom, sound check jam. And then they do a thing and it's amazing. What I'm, the world I'm going in, there's these, there's these walls up here. So you got to do something cool within these limitations. That's my favorite thing. You got tempo, that's a limitation. You got chords, that's a limitation. If you have a singer and you have a melody, there's a big limitation because you cannot conflict with any of those things. There's no fights that are going to be picked in one. So what do you do with that? I just listen, you know, blank slate. Okay, four chords, what's happening? Does it need movement? Does it need, what does it need from the rhythm section? What's the kick drum going to do? I long ago stopped caring about what the kick drum pattern is. Where I, I remember early on, interesting, you know, before starting a session or a song, it's like, oh, what are you going to do for your kick drum pattern? I haven't asked that or even thought that in about 15 years because it, this is controversial possibly, but it doesn't matter. It's not going to tell me what to play. It'll help inform me of what I want to do, but it's not going to define what I play. So I can play when the kick drum doesn't kick. 
I can also not play when the kick drum does kick. And so I'm just feeding off, you know, I will react. Sometimes it's simple. It's like boom, boom, boom. Like if I hear a guy do that, it's like, oh, that's great. I'm going to join in with that. But it doesn't mean I have to figure that out. Like I'm talking about recording where we're going to have, we're going to define what gets played live. So let's explore. Like the drummer may, this is exploration mode. The drummer may be allowed to change pattern midway through because he's going, hey, that didn't work. Or you're responding to the vocal thing. Often it's by the third take, we're like, I, I know the song now. I know what the singer's singing. I know where those spaces are. I, I'm always listening for how long is the vocal phrase? Because I don't want to get into that competition too soon. You know, maybe later on in the song where you want a little interplay, but I tend to just be a listener and I might not even play for a couple measures, you know, just hit some whole notes and just start to see does anyone need me to to you know push them forward? Does anyone need a little guidance? And again, this this is imagining there's no demo tape. Sometimes you hear a demo and there's a steady eighth note bass line. And if that sounds awesome, it's like, great, I'll start there and then we'll add to that or we'll take away from that or we'll create space. You know, the give the more limitations you give or the more guidance you give, I will be able to quickly run the numbers like we all do. It's like you've played so many songs 20 years in to your adult life. It's like, okay, I tried to outsmart a song before and it didn't work. So I'm going to go, I'm going to do the thing that's got a high success rate and then see, you know, this is what is better about recording with other humans to me. Because when you start getting nods and encouragement from your the other people in the room, artists, producer, other musicians, that's when you know you're you're crushing it. When you're all alone in front of your screen and you're trying to imagine that what the producer's gonna think of it, that that gets a little harder. But luckily, you know, you have this experience of like, oh right, when I do that, I like it. And nine times out of ten, my instincts have been in line with the person that I've recorded with or the possibilities, because I'm trying to sniff out the the options like what where do you play the note what octave do you play it in that is already before you even add rhythm that is instantly going to give you a reaction a feeling like imagine a C on the 3rd fret of the A string versus a C on the 10th fret of the D string both C's both root notes those are not the same that is a whole different scene yeah. right and it to me is like well i only have two there aren't really any other C's for me i mean maybe there's a low C and a five string and then there's an even higher C but really i've only got two good C's that are song worthy and then <laughs> then we see what else we got but i like so, i like to play the two good C's yeah right just so you know <laughs> Then I've got three available. Like, this is just knowing your instrument. Like, yeah. I've never thought about it or put it into words like this, but it's always like, where am I going to play that D? You know, where am I going to play that E? Where am I going to play that F? Sometimes that's the one like, oh, could this song, could the chorus take the F on the third fret of the D, on the eighth fret of the A? Or does it demand being the first fret of the E string? Like, those are, that will tell you what you're doing. A lot of times. Oh, I dig that. I don't know. I'm just winging it, man. This is throwing like, it, so, you're throwing it out there. I yeah. dig it. What, what do you think? Uh, name 
maybe three things, if you can, that go into creating a great bass line? Uh, well, I think supporting the song or serving the song is number one. And that is now throw out everything I've said before. You can do, depending on who you are as a player and what your voice is, that could be the busiest thing. Like Jocko, John Entwistle, Flea, like they all do some really like demanding, you know, hey, look at me. This is what I'm defining the tune. This is get on my back. I, I got us. We're doing everything. So doing something that supports the song. I mean, if if Flea didn't do what he does, the Chili Peppers would have this gaping hole of like, well, where is where's the rest of the song? Yeah. So supporting the song, and that doesn't mean just playing dumb and playing simple. Then, you know, again, I, I think that's kind of, it's probably, you only need that one thing because if you're really listening and you're really playing well with others, you're going to figure out like how to do, how to move the song along, how to create a subhook. It may not need it, but whatever you can do to support that song to help lift it like we all know that feeling of hey what's dynamics like following the the song's dynamics and then how we all have those same limitations how many notes does it take to create a classic bass line i'm always looking hey man mccartney did it with just a few with come together you know he did it with just a few with tax man flea did it with just a few by using a different technique or just a few, you know, a Blood Sugar Sex Magic was a big record for me. And so you me could too. look, there's a ton of different styles on that. So like, take your pick. And they're all kind of, if if you subbed out me in the band, I wouldn't like it as much. So I think just doing, finding a unique way to be you in a song, because if you're in that stew, that that kind of makes it like, Bob Babbitt plays a little differently than James Jamerson. They both create great bass lines. You know, it's it's such an elusive uh, zen-like art. Like, what is, is it the simplicity of it? Or, you know, I think about Tom Sawyer, which was one of the first bass lines that I probably would have sung before I even knew it. You know, how cool is that, though, that you can still sing that? Right. That is, yes. it, it stuck in so deep with yeah. one hearing. So I think about that. How Now we know, this is the question I always think about. If I ever doubt, like, well, what are my, are my instincts wrong? Well, for me, I'm, I'm fortified enough to go, hey, I've, I've tested them. I'm going to stick with my gut. And then I will take the guidance of those around me who also have a, a you know, a skin in the game, right? So if they want more from me, I'm happy to give. If they want less from me, happy to give. But you think about Getty Lee was capable of anything, but yet Tom, uh, Tom Sawyer, there's a bit of, other than the tone, which is really hard to get, you know, just out of the box, you got to kind of chase that. It's kind of a simple line, but yet the song is like, that's that's brilliant. You know, that's yeah. as good a line as that song could ever have he could have played more but he didn't so it's i try to reflect on like how do these guys do it with simplicity and it's still a great baseline i don't i don't know if if uh it's this is can be distilled down to the three tenets of what makes a great baseline because kiss has a lot of great baselines and you know gene simmons isn't known for his like fluidity or his uh you know 
ability on the base or but you like Detroit Rock City I if any of us came up with something different it'd be like yeah I don't like it you know right, but I right. like what Gene played so I don't know it's it's hard to like what makes how do you get famous what makes an iconic line it's it's such an elusive moving target good points let's go back a little bit um, all right talk about how you even started playing bass and why the bass that is a simple story because I I had you know I was so young I was 11 I think yeah I was 11 I played the saxophone when I was 10 I liked it my music teacher this is school program you know you you can pick a one wood instrument or you can you pick a string you pick one kid would maybe play the snare drum so the the coolest thing was to play the saxophone that was about as rock and roll as you could get and then <laughs> I played it but I was 10 I didn't continue it through the summer they gave you that option and the next year when fifth grade started I was 11 the teacher called me in was like hey you didn't continue with the sax and I I was so into sports I just kind of forgot about music and I liked listening to it but didn't really pursue it but because he called me in, I still remember it. It was like, oh, he thought I had musical talent. That's that's something that when someone says it, you you don't forget it, or at least I right. didn't. So then later that year, like the end of the school year in May, a friend of my brother's who was a drummer, who's four years older, five years older, he had said, hey, man, what do you play? And I didn't play anything. He's like, well, you should play the bass. Come on up and watch my band. And you can take lessons from the kid, Kevin, who plays in my band. These would have all been like 16, 17-year-olds. So being invited to the basement while they're rocking out was kind of rad. So, And then I think I was hanging with some friends. who was like, hey, what do you play? Oh, I like drums. All right, you should come up and learn drums from me. Hey, what do you play? Oh, guitar. All right, great. So we all went up. And I, because I was told to focus on the bass player, he looked cool. I still remember the strap. He had nice. for his, his bass. He had one of those acoustic padded bass amps with the glowing uh, purplish bluish thing. You'll you'll recognize it if I send you a picture. Okay. And so it just I took lessons from him. He was great. He taught me to read from day one. So when I was eleven, oh, okay. nice. I was learning. Yeah, it was go out and get a bass. My dad drove me. I was in Western Mass. We went to Albany, New York. I got a Hagstrom bass. It was relatively easy enough to play. I got the blisters on the fingers, you know, the whole thing. But the the kid who was teaching me was, he had the right approach. Like, oh, hey, you know, you like stuff on the radio. Uh, Broken Wings from Mr. Mister was out. That had a great bass line. Like that song, there's yet an, another example of a classic bass line. Real simple. Not much is going on other than the bass line driving the tune. And then there was some... Kiss tunes, but I, I just mentioned, oh, I like these. So he would teach me that while I was also going through a Mel Bay book, learning how to read. So as you're physically unable to make sounds with a thing and learning how to do that, I was being guided to, hey, that string that you're trying to hit, that's the E. This is what it looks like on the staff. So by the time I could play within two years, I'm in bands, everything's good. My reading was right there at the same level. That's which, amazing. All which, at once. Yeah, it yeah. It, it was fortunate because I remember watching a Jocko video and he he could play so well so early and didn't learn to read and so he had to learn later. And to slow that down when you can already blast was a bit of a drag for him. 
but I, everything went at the same pace. We're like, okay, now I'm learning how to play with more finesse, fluidity, and the reading was, these are ways, okay, you can increase your speed by reading these things, doing, working on this, working on that. So I was able to do it all together. So I really attacked it. And so by sixth grade, I was really into it, looking for opportunities to play with friends, learn tunes, challenge ourselves. I got into the prog rock stuff, Zeppelin, like anything that older kids were like, hey, do you know how to play this? I would go and learn how to play. And there was always a hunt for a bass player. So I I had a lot of contact with people older than me because they were like, you have a bass, you play? All right, come on over here, blah, blah, blah. Or you got to check this out or let's hang out. And I got into some hooligan, not that I did anything wrong, but I hung out with some people that were into some terrible things just because that's what the musicians were doing back then. <laughs> that's very cool, man. Um, you know, a lot of these um, shows that we've done for Bass Freaks, um, the majority of the players have discussed their time in in music class at school, and that being one of the sole factors that has encouraged them to even start playing music and the bass. Yeah. And I find it really unfortunate that they're, you know, removing so many programs. Yeah. Um, and I, because I've got kids, you know, anyone with kids, you realize like you've got boots on the ground. So you're going, wait, they're not offering this. They're not offering yeah. that. I've had conversations. It, it does break my heart because I, I would take a bass with a gig bag and walk it to school because there was an opportunity to play three days a week. And then I remember seeing a buddy of mine, he was playing in the auditorium one day. It just the fact that there was music actually being played by students and things. I don't know what we can do to change it. Everything seems to have, it's like that's what they cut when right. they're in a budget crunch. And it really, it, it's definitely heartbreaking. Well, the benefits outweigh the cost, I would say. By a gazillion to one, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah. the and my wife being in the mental health field, it's like that. If you are have a healthy diet of music and art, you get better at math. It it just in it increases all of your cognitive functions. That it's just it's a shame that they're pinpointing and trying to make everything you know, be science and math when they're missing out on the part. Because I, so many of the doctors that I would see when I moved to LA, just going for a regular checkup, they're like, they would, I would see them at the NAM show. Like a lot of the dudes were musicians too, because they, it just kind of went hand in hand. If you're into, if you're smart, a lot of times you have this little musical curiosity and an ability to learn it. And when you can explore it in school, you know, you don't have to devote your life to it, but a little right. a little spattering is like it, it makes you a well-rounded human and you, it increases your taste and your your growth mindset. One thousand percent. And not only that, for for me personally, it kept me out of a lot of trouble. Sure. Sure. Um, right. Because you have structure like structure is everything when you're a kid. And when you have those, hey, come to band practice or even if it's extracurricular beyond band stuff it's like there's a community that you're part of right yes yes sir yeah man um how do you feel about reaching back and uh supporting new players up and coming i'm a big fan of what everybody's doing and with instagram i think it's i just get a a thrill out of seeing people with a bass in their hands doing stuff so 
the names escape me, but I watch every day like somebody doing something that I think it would have been harder for us when we were kids because you're limited. There was no YouTube, no Instagram. You'd have to... It seemed like there were only 10 bass players in the world. Right. Totally. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. I do. Now seeing young people play, even the youngest kids, Aaron, the bassist, like I watch stuff. I've pulled things from Instagram many times. If I hear somebody doing something cool, I pull it. I you know screen record it, turn it into audio, put it into Pro Tools, and just learn these little chunks of like, what did somebody play over this little pentatonic thing? What did somebody do here? What did somebody do there? And it's so many young people because that's an avenue that feels like a gig in a way that, that right. they're out there just sharing their enthusiasm for the instruments. So I love it, and I I feel like. Because I'm into, like a lot of musicians, we just want to keep learning and keep getting excited about it. So when I hear somebody playing the same four strings, same notes, same two good Cs, when they do something, it's like, oh man, I love it. I just, I love it. Because bass kind of ebbs and flows into what is cool. Like there's a lot of pop tunes my kids listen to and there's no bass on it. So, you know, no, no actual played bass. And I don't mind it, but right. I like seeing the excitement of like, Hey, there's a bass player, a bass line, a thing happening with that instrument. Right. And, um, fortunately young people or anyone really, um, are exposed to to base by Instagram right. or by YouTube or, and like you said earlier, you know, all you can do is kind of watch music videos that were on MTV right. when you could or buy a record. But now it's just really in your face, which I love. I'm stoked on it. Yeah. And it, the, the niche of the, the community of base, it's just, it's like, if you know, you know. So once you, you know, the algorithms, like I, I get new things of different bass players all the time and, I just love it because I realize everyone's still getting affected by music. They're getting inspired by something they saw, and that's causing them to go deep and attack this thing. And you're like, oh, wow, there's just, it's a never-ending well of enthusiasm for this instrument that can be played well alone. And then when you put it in context with a band and a song, it's like it still gets people excited. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. You're headed to a session uh, for John Mayer. What three pieces of gear are you taking with you? Well, for me, you know, this is not a John call out of the blue, although there was my first John session. So, so okay. All right. So let's right, talk about so, the, the difference from then and now. Right. The difference is, so let's take the the first one. It's like if someone, if John calls, so you already, it's basically, hey, if A-list guy calls you, what do you bring? Well, you, you want to bring all the right stuff. If they're calling you for one song, this is where I'm probably too much of a worrier, but it's like, I don't want to be a try hard where I'm like, I'm going to bring 10 basses and three amps to a one-song session. And the first thing I ever did with John was a day with Alicia Keys in 2006, and he called me the day before and was like, hey, can you come in and play on play on a, a day with, you know, we're going to do a song or two. So I didn't want to bring 10 basses. I, I, I am a You just brought def- a kazoo. Right, exactly. And I... <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, I do, I have a three to five base thing where I can try to figure out, okay, I got to have this base, this base, this base. Got to have my three core depending on who it is, what it is. And then I got two variables. And if I can't do it with those, uh, I can adjust something to to get it. It's like, it, this is the benefit of having the, the equipment gathered and, and sort of figured out over time. But what's different now from then is I can I could probably walk in with two bases. All right, go, what are they? Go, Which it's going to be one or two. It's going to be a P-base with rounds or a P-base with flats. And okay. I have the two that I've recorded on other recording so every time you record a song and the artist likes it and then they put it out on the record you can then go hey i use this bass on this tune do you like that or should we try something else for this uh, okay okay it, why it, the it, why it, the p bass uh for me i learned i don't like to be wrong so <laughs> when, when, <laughs> why be and, wrong when you can be right <laughs> be right exactly so <laughs> Like I said, I got two good C's, so I got a 50-50 chance. What what I, my trouble growing up where I grew up, because I know some people grow up in L.A. and they get to this information sooner, or maybe they see it on YouTube and they get it. Nobody told me other than a couple guys like, oh, you got to have this. And again, depending on what your age is and when you grew up, you'll have like, oh, this is cool. This is not cool. You remember GK and Harkey? Like that was... All the ads I saw, you know, had Will Lee and Stu Ham and even Jack Bruce. And it's like, okay, I'll have a GK and a Harky. Uh, so you go through that. I showed up in L.A. with two bases. And <laughs> one of them was a fretless. So <laughs> I was going to be playing one bass. And I remember having success with it with one particular situation. And when I went to use it in the next situation which was our friend Robin Thicke, I played and they're like, oh, you're great. Love your playing. You know, I was brought in from a friend. So it was already like, welcome to the family. It wasn't an audition setting, but the recording didn't, they were not happy with the tone of the instrument. Not that this instrument doesn't sound good, but that wasn't the sound they were looking for. And then as a one bass man at that, because this, I would have been flying in. So I'm with one bass and I'm being told they don't like it enough. Like, oh, we'll fix it later or we'll do something or we'll have a... And you're like, what do you do? If you're me, you go, I can never be in this situation again, right? This is, I don't like this feeling. I'm not, I don't believe in one instrument so much that I'm going to fight for it. I go, well, what should I play? What would you rather hear? And my friend who is the guitar player, he happened to have a passive P bass and he handed it over because he was flying back and forth and you know inevitably there's always a bass line around he handed it to me he's like well try this and I played it and I had played it before because he had had it around his house in Boston and they're like oh that's great yeah that sits in the mix better so uh, if you're me I go if I don't have one of these by tomorrow I'm doing it wrong so then I would test it out this is early 2000s. I'd go to a session and I would, I remember one in particular, I'm playing, I play, I think, oh, I think they're going to love this bass. It's like, no, it's when the chorus comes, I'm losing you. Okay. So I switched to another bass. 
that's cool for the verses, but I'm still, the chorus is not happening. So you figure out, you do these tests of like, God, they keep, the one that keeps winning was this P bass. So I should make sure I've got, okay, God, I got to have a round one one because a lot of the pop stuff, it, it speaks better when the hi-hats and guitars are over it or synths, whatever high-end stuff. It's like, well, I really should have a flat wound P bass. All right. So eventually you just start chasing like what's been winning the most in your arsenal and then get the, if there are options like, okay, if there's two, two classic options, P bass with round P bass with flats, let me make sure I have that. I kept bringing my jazz bass with me and anytime I tested out, I remember do, I did the same test with active versus passive. I had two identical Lakeland five strings that, the, the song needed a five string, so I, I played the passive one first, and they got a sound. They're like, oh, that's great. I said, hey, before we move on, let me play. And these were friends. I was, I was getting to, to know them, and we were relaxed, taking our time. I said, let me, let me try this other one just to rule it out, see if you don't like it, an active version of the same bass. And immediately, even the assistant, who are they're generally not encouraged to opine on the tone of things. To he, speak. Like, he got on the talk back and was like, no, the first base. And he was like, that one's terrible. Or like, he hated it. Whatever wow. it was. He, okay. So I was like, okay. So I literally stopped using that bass on any session. And I found, right. okay, this passive one is a winner. And that's how I went to, I'm never going to play anything that's active in a studio because it's only gotten me heartache. It, it was the thing, the thing. Now, this is, again, this is just me. I used to think I had answers to all problems. Turns out I only have answers for myself in my particular <laughs> world. But that is how it, it's just a slow drift. It's kind of glacial. And then suddenly it's like, I'm always playing this one particular P bass. Anytime I try something else. And sometimes it's like, hey, we would love to hear a Hofner. I'm down for anything, but... It, the P bass kept winning, and it, and so much so, it's like three songs in, they're like, "Damn, I, I didn't even notice how this is so good. The bass is so good. They just keep moving." I was like, "Oh, drums are perfect. Great. Next song." And then they're like, "Oh, hey, Sean, great job. By the way, that you know, almost didn't you notice you there? It was so perfect. We didn't wow. have to think about it. Not even. It's like when you pull up the right vocal mic, you don't go, ah." Oh. Gosh, but is there something better? It's like, no, that sounds amazing. Let's go on. Okay, sing. Start singing. And that's the way when they treat me like that, I'm like, great. Yeah. If you if if I don't stand out in that world, that is a sign of like, yeah, you're you're killing it because it right. we don't have to because I have been targeted like, yeah, something's not right. And when we notice you, it's like noticing the tone of the kick drum like, yeah, if it doesn't sound good, we have we're it, it, shut everything down. We got to start from scratch because if the low end is not correct, the song is going to be tough to build on. Yeah. You're so right. I had a producer tell me one time, if I don't notice you, you're doing it right. Once I actually finished the session, I was like, okay, I understand. So yeah, it, you're right. It, it can be tough to, now that's not what you want to hear in your formative years when you're yeah. like, but I'm trying to see if what I'm doing is good. And if you don't notice me, how do I know if, can you give me any constructive yeah. criticism? Give me some but, validation, please. Right, yeah. right. But when you get to, when you've done it again and again and again, and they're like, yeah, we don't have to worry about you. Like you're the guy that I trust implicitly. So I'm allowed to 
there's so much money that's being spent way above your frequencies. <laughs> so if they can focus on that, like a singer's voice can tire things, other things can be of a concern. So if they don't have to worry about you and they can just keep moving on and then thank you at the end of the day, yeah. you are doing it right. I love to get paid with compliments, but I also understand the simplicity of like, hey, if you do it right and you take away any guesswork, it's like driving on a road with not no potholes. Like right. you don't you don't have to thank the city at the end of your drive, but you can go <laughs> like that was awesome. Uh, <laughs> I like that analogy. I like that. Do you Sweet. use a uh, any specific outboard preamp or anything? I I've been thinking about this recently. The the answer is no cuz so much of the time I'll show up somewhere and it what's available to me is is not always consistent from studio to studio. So a lot of times they'll plug me into a Neve pre, sometimes it's an API. Sometimes I don't even get a good look like what are they doing in there and I go and it, it sounds great and I don't even think to go, hey, where am I going through the console? Am I something yeah. outboard? I do know there are some great boards in LA that sound great. I know there's some great outboard gear. Every time I plug into a Neve, everything's cool. You know, I go to home studios and we're we're doing the best we can. And it always, I try to take it on, what am I giving to them? I try to do the right bass. I've switched over years ago to fell in love with a Noble DI. So I always I was going to ask that. you about that. How do you like those? I, I like it a lot. And that was a discovery through Instagram, kind of. There was a lot of lot of heat coming up from these guys. Like, oh, I love this. I love the best thing I've ever heard. I'm like, it's a DI, bro. There can't be, like, you're telling me, really? It's like, is it really about the tires? Like, okay. So I go, I'm going to give this thing a shot. And it was incrementally better than what I had been using. I liked it blind taste test, even putting it before my amp. So I, that's when I said, all right, I don't know if the hype is real, but I certainly prefer it. And since it, it is my profession, I will spend whatever it takes to sound to what I think is the best. So that's where I'm, I'm trying to deliver, hey, bass, DI. And then the producer has a skill set. You know, the artist has a, a taste. So once I turn it into the control room, I allow them to do their thing. And, and it's, a, it's a team effort where they may, you know, I've had conversations with Mayor's engineer, Chad. He's, we were doing a record in 2011, born and raised. And he, he was, you know, recording me over and over again. So he's going, man, I'm, I stopped using a compressor on you cause I don't need it. And I'm getting, it allows me like, I just plug you into the Neve and that's it. And I, cause he would have plugged me into a compressor to do what he normally does and gone. I like the sound of Sean without the compressor. Cause he doesn't need to be held back. It's not, you know, it's, I like to use a compressor at times cause this, it's a tonal shift it it does something to the tone when you're using a good one but it's a lot of times they teach engineers like oh and the bass player is spiky or doesn't have great technique you can use a compressor to keep them in check right and you know when you work with better engineers they're going all right that's coloring it in a way that i don't think i need so i want to use and early on in my robin thick days a guy was like i love your tone i feel like i could plug you in right into the back of the tape machine and it would sound awesome. Like I don't need to do anything to get you where I want it to sit. 
in the mix. So right. things like that are, you know, when, when kids on Instagram, not always kids, adults, they'll ask, hey, what are you going through? I keep forgetting to say, I'm turning in a bass, my thing through a DI, maybe something through an amp with a little drive, but I can't tell you what the engineer is doing or where, right. where their skill set is because everybody is doing something. They're plugging me into a Neve possibly, which yeah. if you don't have that at home, which a lot of us don't, it's going to be... And then what's the mixer doing? You know, a lot of yeah. the guys were, were judging like, oh, I love that sound. Like, well, it was produced, recorded, and mixed beyond what I was able to turn in. So... Those are so, all great points because you don't, really don't even think about that. You're it, just listening to, to the outcome. It's hard to think about it. Right. You're so like, you're going, hey, I hear that. So what did you do to get that? Like, I don't, it, very few of us are watching over the mixer's shoulder to go, is he putting a, a low, a, like a band compressor to really tighten up the low end and stuff? It, it, it's hard to say, but all, all we can do is go, hey, what was our front end? What did we turn in right. for our homework and see how, how it was filtered? It's great. What about strings? What kind of strings do you use? I, I've, as a kid, I got, I think the first bass and every bass, I would use Diodarios. They were nickel plated and I got a taste for nickel. So when someone put steels under on a bass, I, they felt so weird to me. It, I was like, what are, what's wrong why don't these feel the same to me? So for me, anything nickel-plated round-wound is what I'm all about. I just happen to fall in love with the Labella company. I love them for their flats. So I use Labella, Deep Talking Flats, or with, you know the name may have... I should pull up the strings, but they've... I've been with the company so long that you know so, some names, some branding has changed. But it's the flat wounds, the FL, I think is what they're called now, but... Labella Flats, which has been in, in existence since Jamerson was playing them. The gauge, gauges I use are 43 to 104. So I need the, the robust tone, but I don't need extra tension. Okay. So those for me are, are the perfect balance. I don't lose any of the tone. 43 to 104. Round wounds, I, I use the Labellas, but the nickel plated. And as long as it's 45, 105... I can put them on any bass, and it the tension for rounds always seems to be uniform from company to company. It's where the flats tension comes in that I don't know why it's different, but I've, every brand seems to be different. When I did my testing years and years ago, I settled on Labella and was fortunate enough to be introduced to them and have a great relationship with them through the years. Fantastic. Uh, you have... Signature bases. I yeah. Well, there's a signature Fender custom shop P base, and it comes in three colors. Because I'm not such a signature dude that it's not like, hey, it's the Jocko base that looks like the one he played. This was just modeled after my '61 P base that I'd been recording and using live with Mayer in 2012, and because of his ties with Fender at the time. I just kind of walked into the room at the head of the line. They're like, hey, let's make a copy of your bass. And they turned it into a production model. Not a production model, but it's a custom shop model. How? So anyone could buy it. You could buy it. When I say production model, it, I'm referring to like Justin Meldo Johnson has a line yeah. that is made in the production. So they make so many more of them. The I have custom, one of those actually. Yeah, it, yeah. I do too. It's, yeah. it's I love that bass. Yeah, it's even, I've got it always right oh, next to me. Mine's it's, right about 
four feet out of reach, but it's here, right, right next it's, to me. It's so fun to play, like a yeah. Mustang. It, it just makes you want to play while you're watching TV. Play. Yeah. It's like you just want to pick it up. The the base I have because it's made by the custom shop. It's a signature model, but you it takes months to be ordered and made. So how I'll close get a is it to what you're actually playing? And do you actually play that bass? I do. I, I was, studio? yeah, I was slow. It, it's a copy of my 61, but as we all know, it's hard to duplicate something that was made 50 years ago. Yeah. So even longer than 50 years ago, it's, you know, we're, we're coming up on, I don't know, we're 70 years or something like it's, it's crazy. So they do, amazing work with with modeling hey this is what the neck feels like this is the the, what the output of the pickups is and so i was given three bases that were the copy of my 61 one in each color and i settled on the charcoal frost one i preferred the look of and i made sure oh that one feels great i think i even swapped a neck from one of the bases i think that i took the neck of the white one and put it on because these are made by hand and everything there's a little uniqueness so i i fell in love with this color with that feel and i put it you know kind of hybrided it together i guess it's it's all the same you know i'm sure you and i would notice differences but I started using it on the road and my tech said, hey, we're going to Brazil. Let's leave the vintage one home and take it. And in 2013, I started using this gray one more and more. And I put round wounds on the the white one. But I now bring my gray custom shop, Sean Hurley Signature Fender, and I leave my 61 at home because I trust it. It sounds great. It feels great. And there's no... it. It hasn't changed over time where yeah. I've had to adjust my 61 with some weather changes and it's showing its age and there's issues like, okay, I had to adjust She's delicate. Pickup. She's delicate. Y- yeah. It, it, and it didn't start out that way, but I've owned it for 10 years. So I've noticed these changes and none of the changes in, in my signature ones I've owned for eight years and they've worked their way to the head of the pack Got for it. live always. But for recording now, everything I'm doing from home, I tend to be using, if it, if I'm using a flat wound bass, I'm using my gray signature bass. Very cool. You can't ask for more than that. I mean, that's awesome. The proof is in the pudding. And I've, yeah. I've communicated, it's a small world that we're living in in, base, in the bass universe. Yeah. And the couple people that have bought these basses that have reached out to me, we're all easy to communicate together on Instagram. They have said to me that it's one of their favorite basses because they, they did a killer job. They do a great job at the custom shop making any instrument, but they, they take into account like, hey, what's the weight? You know, it all goes into making the bass sound the way you want it. But we put this mute thing on it. So you can't get a bass that's got the flip up mute like I have on my bass unless you drill a hole in a bass. So it's a, it's a Jaguar mute that would have come on a Jaguar guitar. If you go into a store or if you see one online in between the like the saddles and the regular trapeze bridge or whatever's going on in the Jaguar, there's a little flip up mute thing that... I liked that idea when they showed it to me at the custom shop because at the time I was always muting the bass. When I was playing with John, mm-hmm. we always wanted the little foam to lessen the decay. This is for that Born and Raised record where he specifically asked, like, hey, if you use that bass, it was the 61, let's mute it a bit. So I put the foam in. And so did you, you install that? 
No, that this is done by the custom shop. So okay. when we settled on the model, they're like, "Hey, how do you want to deal with the f- the foam issue?" Yeah, and they said we could just sell it with a piece, or we could do one of the guys had had done this to a base of his. He's like, we could do this, and I love the idea because you can flip it on or flip it off. It's like having a capo. Right. So I was like, great. When I want it, I flip it up. When I want it to not be there, I flip it down and. It was something, you know, a, a mildly new twist on a regular P base because there, there's only so many things you can do to a P base and have it still be a P day, P base. So this is how it comes, and the mute thing is just, you know, one of the specs that we thought, hey, if you can have the mute already predefined rather than shoving in, a you know, a, a ratty piece of foam or whatever you might try to source. We thought it was cooler. And I said, hey, you also have to put the labellas I use on there because that will make it feel and sound like the bass I'm trying to duplicate. It's mm. got to have the tension to me of flat wounds is such a it, it's either a deal maker or a deal breaker. But anyway, that was a sign like, oh, they're taking this for real. They're buying the strings Amazing. to make sure that they all have them. That's very cool, man. Congratulations on that. And congratulations on actually um, making a bass that you use and love. Very cool. Love it. Why, thank you. What do you, uh, you like any other basses besides Peace? There's there's a lot I've got in my arsenal, and a friend of mine was encouraging me to play this Hofner on a tune, so I've kind of fallen back in love with that. That's a 69, you know, the classic violin McCartney bass. Yeah. Um, the Harmony H22 is like all the rage with the indie, the cool, earthy sound. A lot of my friends in LA, if they didn't have one during this year and a half of being stuck at home, they've all picked one up because it's a relatively affordable, very cool, woody sound you're not going to get from any other source. It's hollow, but it's it's got a particular pickup from a particular era that's like it's... Nothing else sounds like it, so it's got a real cool place in your in your toolkit. Awesome, that's that's very cool too. So and a lot of a lot of guys know about it, but it, you would recognize it if you saw it. But it's called the Harmony H twenty two. But it's they don't make them anymore, so you got to buy an old one, and they're probably twelve hundred, fifteen hundred bucks. Uh, okay, very cool. What uh what is something musically that um, people may not know about you? Oh boy, probably everything that I can, <laughs> I, I can play more than eighth notes. Oh, I can play faster than whole notes. Um, I don't know. Well, I, I, I hear myself say it all the time, but my first love musically, even before I had a saxophone or a bass was ACDC. And it still is, goes deeply into my heart of beloved. I feel like the ACDC rhythm section was definitive for it's probably why I like to play simply but also hey if you need me to join you on the riff I'm in it just that foundationally is where my musical soul began and expanded out you know I got I got into other things I really did a long time of studying Jocko and trying to get into as much jazz theory that I could but I've kind of I've I've chosen a different path and I try to utilize like what's the simplest way to solve an equation but uh 
that is, I guess, my love of ACDC. I know every ACDC song. I could join an ACDC cover band tomorrow. I think you should. I think you should. I would like to now, now that you, know. you mention it. That would be a lot of fun. And I would come to see you. Every, Please, every yeah, time. We'll, be, we'll be playing the Ryman next week. So okay, it's cool, be, very cool. Yeah, <laughs> awesome, man. Uh, what brings you joy and what inspires you? Um, well, I still get a kick out of hearing new tunes. Like my daughter will send me a playlist, like what I'm listening to today, and when I listen to it and find myself really digging it, like the poppiest of pop, I still like myself for like I you know because you can't lie to yourself like you either like something you don't I still really like music so I hear like I love Justin Bieber I hear his voice he sounds like the the voice you would create in a in a perfectly angelic factory like who you know give me a great singer I I any any song with a great singer and i like discovering songs that i never heard before an old otis redding song or maybe a uh, an artist that i didn't hear their whole catalog cuz it was harder to come by you know when we were kids you're like uh-huh. did you have every record from donny hathaway or did you have every record from whoever it is so hearing something that i never heard before and loving it hearing a familiar voice falling in love with a new song or hearing a new tune. I just, I still like scrolling through, like what's a recommended something from Spotify and finding a new band that you think is cool. That's how I discovered, um, the gay, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Um, it's cough syrup was the, the big tune that they had young, the giant, like I, oh, yeah. you know, it was a early, or it, and that's actually how I discovered Billie Eilish years and years ago. Something came up was like, it was she was on an indie playlist and I heard uh, Ocean Eyes. It's like, who's this band? Billie Eilish. I really think they're cool. So <laughs> the, the fact that I still get awoken by really cool music and and if I like something and then other people end up liking it, it's like okay, I'm I still feel connected to humanity. That mm. that gets me inspired to like I something new is going to come out tomorrow that I haven't heard that a gazillion people are going to love and I get to discover it along with them. And I, that's why I love, like I got nothing bad to say about technology because it is all about like my record collection has expanded a gazillion fold. And I come from an era where you had to save up to, you had to go to try to find it. And was it even available? I remember hearing higher ground and seeing the chili peppers video. And when I went to buy the CD, they didn't have it. So I had to I bought the earlier records and that was its own kind of cool thing but now I just like hearing a new tune for the first time and going wow that is awesome or nope pass next and then right. finding something else I love. <laughs> that happens. You know, yeah. we all have our our taste and yep. likes but I I think that it's so important and I think it's beautiful that you still love music. Yes. Music not not anything just um, not in a closed-minded way, but it shows in your playing. It shows in your um, passion, and uh, I think it's awesome. I'm, I hope we all just keep it. Like I said, the community of guys I play with are still. They all have that mindset. So if 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 I'm around people with the growth mindset, it always informs me to like, yeah, what we don't all have to chase. Oh, that was better in the '70s or better in the '80s. Whatever your right. favorite era is. I love all everything that I loved, but 
hearing new stuff. I'm, I'm excited to be in to talk to you, to people that are excited. Like just the fact that we're having a conversation, like it's exciting that there's still undiscovered ideas about doing the thing that we do. Yes. That would be like, hey, it's 2021. I thought we'd have it all figured out by now, but guess what? We don't. And that's cool. <laughs> and that is the truth. And that is cool. Dude, thank you so much for jumping on here, man. It's My really pleasure. good to see you and talk to you. It's been a while. Man, I appreciate you, brother. And I'm so glad that we're still connected. Uh, yes. I'm looking forward to everything that you're doing, and I can't wait to hear. It. Te- hopefully te- hopefully te- you yeah, got a solo thing at some point. One of these days, I, I will do something maybe where there aren't people singing so that you'll hear something more than, you know, the undercurrent, well, you, but I, I still get, I think I get people so hear, hear more than you actually think. brother. <laughs> I think they do. They feel it. You're making, yeah. you're making music. It's beautiful. Ma- making people uh, move. Yes, sir. That is our show for today. Thank you again for joining us, Sean and uh, stay healthy and kind, spread love, good vibes and inspiration. And remember friends, you got this. Follow your path and just play. I'm Josh Paul. Hope to see you out there sometime soon. And thank you to Dunlop for making this show possible. Be sure to check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Cheers.